Hello everyone, this is Lorado and welcome to the AAEM Social EM Grassroot Highlight Series. Today I am joined by Dr. Gingold. Dr. Gingold is an Associate Professor at the University of Maryland Medical Center. He is also the Assistant Medical Director of the Division of Population Health and the Medical Director of the Baltimore City Mobile Integrated Health Community Paramedic Program. Welcome to the show, Dr. Gingold. Thank you, thanks for having me. Yeah, our pleasure. All right, so we'll go straight into it. Can you please tell us a little bit about what the Baltimore City Mobile Integrated Health Community Paramedic Program is and what it does? Sure, the Baltimore City MH Program is a partnership between the University of Maryland Medical Center, so the hospital that our residency is based in that I work at clinically, and the Baltimore City Fire Department, which runs EMS services for Baltimore City. Um, it was funded actually through sort of a grant or a rate adjustment from the state of Maryland um, that was given, a chunk of money was given to the hospital and then the uh, fire department was a subcontractor for the contract. And the goal was to reduce unnecessary healthcare utilization, particularly readmissions. So obviously hospitals focus a lot on readmissions and don't want that to happen, particularly within 30 days because they get financial penalties. So the goal was to do two things. One, decrease uh, readmissions and ED visits, and the other is reduce EMS volume because that's the primary interest of the Baltimore City Fire Department. They're very, very busy EMS services, one of the biggest number of calls per capita in the country. They frequently run out of ambulances and are looking for ways to offload that. So there were two main parts of the program. The first was a transitional health care program, which enrolled patients who were admitted to the hospital uh, as inpatient or OBS, and then in the family medicine or internal medicine services and were being discharged to home. And so the goal was to enroll those patients for a 30-day program and have them receive home visits from community paramedics and then a multidisciplinary team supported the home visits and tried to essentially get the patients whatever they needed. So the community paramedics went through a lot of special training. I think it was like 60 to 80 hours of specialized training. They did some shadowing in our clinics and in the emergency department and even a few inpatient services, I think. And so they would go out to the patient's home and do a need screening, both for medical needs and health-related social needs at the beginning on their initial visit. And then follow-up visits would be scheduled with them. They would get a telemedicine medic medication reconciliation with the pharmacist. There we had social work and case management assistance. And we had community health workers that worked in the operations center that sort of followed the patient along and tried to get them whatever they needed, work on getting them appointments with their primary care doctor, specialist care, that kind of thing. So that was one part of the program to try to when people were discharged, keep people from coming back to the hospital. And that was focused on West Baltimore. So patients actually had to live within uh, like five or six zip codes that make up West Baltimore. And that's a very high need population, a lot of concentrated poverty there, high psychiatric substance use comorbidities, um, lots of um, compensated or lots of chronic disease. So that's a pretty high need population. The second part of the program, which is essentially totally different, is a, actually a 911 ambulance diversion program. So the goal of that was to take low acuity cases for patients calling 911 
and not transport them to the hospital and, and either provide them alternative transportation to an alternative destination or to treat them in the field. So that was MD or NP would be riding around with a community paramedic and a SUV that was specially outfitted. It had a bunch of medical supplies in it. And they would be stalking, kind of like stalking the board, listening to 911 calls come into triage and could go to the calls that they thought they'd be able to handle out in the field. So initially those had to be relatively low, you know, a low triage acuity um, from the dispatcher. Um, and we only saw adults, but other than that, they could see most types of calls. And so the NP and the community paramedic would go to the scene and screen the patient, make sure that they didn't need to go to the hospital or they didn't mind not going to the hospital and then the patient would get consented and enrolled in the program uh, if they were appropriate and then the NP would treat them in place. So that was very good at, you know, on low mechanism motor vehicle accidents are very common for that. Patients don't really need to go to the hospital, don't need a lot of tests. Um, you know, even like simple lacerations, falls, um, those kind of things that could be just treated in place, or we could provide them a lift to go to urgent care or even their primary care doctor if that was worked out. Um, so that was uh, another part of the program. And so that one was really focusing on slightly reducing ED visits, but especially for the fire department, they were really, really interested in having that reduce ambulance, like the need to use ambulances for low acuity cases, because not only would that mean that the ambulance would taking them and wouldn't be able to respond to something more acute, but often the low acuity cases would also get stuck at the hospital for offload. And that would, uh, you know, have fewer ambulances available for emergencies. So those are the two main points of the program. All right. Awesome. Thank you. And what were some like steps that you took in order to be able to get all the people from like the different like specialties, different areas of medicine together and also acquiring funding, considering how well involved and uh, significant this project was? Um, yeah, I actually wasn't part of the initial funding. One of my colleagues, I was sort of, I had just graduated residency actually, and one of my more senior colleagues had been working on um, obtaining the funding. And so there are a lot of, that was a lot of hurting of stakeholders between the state funding agency and people in the hospital and the population health division of the hospital and the fire department. Um, and it, I mean, it took a lot of buy-in from all of those players. You know, you can't really do this without buy-in from the fire department. Um, and then there's also some support from the city government in particular. So I think that was, sort of just triangulating a lot of those interests and making sure everyone is on the same page. And then after they said, okay, and they got the funding, then it was a similar sort of thing of trying to hire up. I mean, they had to recruit and hire community health workers. They had to recruit and hire a social worker. They had to, there was cross collaboration between the Department of Emergency Medicine and the pharmacy, which actually even have different schools. So there's a school of medicine and the school of pharmacy. And that was a very important component of the program, having the pharmacists involved. So it really was finding the right people to work on that. And then we also had a, a relationship with a biostatistician to help with monitoring and evaluation and health economists to help with monitoring and evaluation. We had a quality person, uh, you know, she's a nurse, but she's like a quality control specialist who works for the hospital. So having someone like that involved in the program really helped with making sure that our QA system was robust and that we weren't missing anything in that work. She helped a lot with figuring out how to document what we were doing. 
there wasn't any billing at the, especially at the beginning, because it was all grant funded, but still we were using the Epic, the electronic health record that the hospital uses. So we had to train all the community paramedics to get access to Epic. And they had to go through some of the hospital like credentialing to be able to access Epic and get trained on, learn how to use it. Cause obviously it's a different, it's a different interface than what they're used to. But that was really nice because then, you know, when patients were in the, in the hospital or they came to ED, you could actually see what was going on and now patient vice versa. It was a lot easier for the people doing the home visits to see why they're in the hospital, what their medication list was, that kind of thing. So I think that was really important to, to use that platform. And as you went through the program, what were some of your outcomes from it? How did it go? What were some of the changes that you saw making within your community as well as your healthcare system? Well, I think one important lesson that we learned up front, and this was not necessarily that data-driven, I think it was just more experience, that I think at the beginning of the program, there was a lot of thinking that they'd be providing hospital-level care in the home, and there'd be IV infusions and all this stuff. And I think we did a little bit of that, but I think what became readily apparent, especially in West Baltimore, was that the social needs just dwarfed the medical problems and that like the people, you know, people weren't likely to come back to the hospital because they weren't getting IV Lasix in their house. It was because they had no idea which of the 20 expired medications in the grocery bag on the kitchen table were their Lasix and would make a difference with their shortness of ethylates was. So I think those kind of health literacy coaching, the medication reconciliation is really important, filling in the gaps of the hospital would have some plan on discharge. And then you go to the person's house and you quickly realize all the reasons why this discharge plan just is not feasible for this person, given the context that they're living in, whether that's their lack of ability to afford medications, the distance they had to go, their mobility problems that prevented them from going to the pharmacy or calling with their primary care doctor, their actually not even have a primary care doctor, even though that they were in the hospital for a couple of weeks and that didn't get set up. So I think, you know, there was a lot of feedback to the inpatient team. So, so the one thing was we had to focus on the social needs or health-related social needs. The second thing was we needed to, what I did not want to do was be another cook in the kitchen or be another set of instructions that were slightly different from the last persons that the patient also would be able to do. So I think what we wanted to do is instead of do be another voice and we were only there for 30 days more just try to smooth the transition and give feedback when things weren't working so if the inpatient team prescribed a medication that the patient couldn't get we would call back the inpatient team instead of prescribing it ourselves and making some decision we'd be like okay hey they couldn't get this can you choose another one or same thing with their primary care doctor their primary care doctor thought they should have been on something but there was some issue with what the patient got discharged from the hospital was instead of being a third person to make yet another decision to muddy the water, we would coordinate either communication between the providers or highlight it for the primary care physician or make them an appointment, make sure that they could get to their primary care physician to discuss the problem. So I think that is part of the problem, especially in Baltimore, where we have a lot of hospitals around patients sometimes bounce between health systems, they might not necessarily have consistent primary care being Yet another uh, transient uh, voice of instruction, I think, is is almost harmful. And instead, we need to be supporting and reinforcing the longitudinal systems of care that would give the patient the best chance they have to be healthy in the long run. So I think those things were very, those two things really changed very quickly how we saw ourselves and how we saw our role in the in the mm-hmm. whole system. And I think that they were 
very important. And let's say, for instance, someone who either serves a similar patient population or who's thought of doing a similar project within their own communities, what advice would you give them? Well, I think a lot of this type of thing, whether it's mobile integrated health or just care coordination in general, you know, is very hyper local. It depends a lot on the interests of the stakeholders in the region. It depends a lot on which, what sort of problems are faced by the policymakers and those stakeholders that they're trying to solve. And mobile integrated health programs popping up all over the country, and they look really different depending on what context they're in. I'm working in a very like high poverty urban environment where we have tons of hospitals all around, but um, so, you know, distance to the hospital is not necessarily the problem that patients have all sorts of other reasons why um, barriers to accessing healthcare, even though it's not that far away. That The types of things that we're going to be dealing with are going to look very different from a rural program where geographic distance is a big deal, uh, where they might want to actually be doing more extension of medical care instead of just coordinating because there's fewer medical resources around and bringing medical resources like to the patient makes a big, a big difference. So, you know, or we hadn't even thought about vaccination until COVID happened. And then when COVID happened, our stakeholders were all very interested in COVID vaccinations. So we added that on as a functionality because we did have some experience going to people's houses. We were able to sort of operationalize the cold storage chain with the hospital and uh, the fire department. And, you know, we could install some refrigerators and actually get out to people's houses. So I think that was a good example of how the, the priorities and stakeholders totally changed and that influenced what we did. I don't think this sort of project works very well. It was just me having some good idea, but it's not solving the problem that stakeholders think is a problem, it's going to be very hard to get a lot of momentum. So I think like understanding the local context and the challenges that both patients and stakeholders face is really important. And and maintaining those relationships, I think a lot of what we were doing, again, was referring people to local already existing community resources. Like we didn't need to set up a food bank. We just had to know where the food banks were, are they near the person's house? How do you apply? How can we help the person, you know, and not just give them a number, but actually like walk them through. And so a lot of those type of things involve developing relationships with people who are already doing that work in the community, which is not something that I think emergency medicine in particular does, has done particularly well. And it's a lot different to just even know the place exists and know the number to have like our community health worker be on a first name relationship basis with the person who does intake for helping up mission or healthcare for the homeless or Paul's mm-hmm. place and be able to call over and say, Hey, I have this patient, Mrs. Mrs. Jones needs such and such and have, they already had to build a sort of rapport and understanding of how those things are going to go. And you get a lot further than just cold calls or having the patient just cold call. So, and that, uh, I think I did not appreciate how important those developing and maintaining those personal relationships was at the beginning. Mm-hmm. That's a very challenging thing to do initially. So I think that's just more, I don't know, reinforces the point of like needing to understand the local context, need to understand the resources that are available, how to navigate that system and know that there's likely going to be a little bit of a learning curve and a, you know, developing a process and relationship as things get up and running. If, if those referral patterns and relationships aren't in place uh, at the beginning. Mm-hmm. And from like the patient slash community standpoint, how was that received? Oh, the patients love it. 
The patients love it. They love people coming to their house. I think one thing that we also learned was using the fire department was really key to getting in the house. The fire department, sort of like unlike the police and honestly, even unlike the hospital on its own or unlike the public health department is a very trusted institution in the community. Like people know that if they're sick, they can call the ambulance. They know if there's a fire, firefighters are here to help them. I don't think there's as much ambivalence or or about letting the fire department into your house. Obviously this is like someone's home and not everyone wants some government worker or hospital worker coming unannounced to the house. So we had a much higher rate of people accepting the intervention, like having them show up at the door and being let in than other similar care coordination things that were done just through the hospital or just through the public health department. I think even those things, when someone was in the hospital and they said, sure, you know, they're signing a ton of different paperwork uh, and that might not understand what all the things are. And then someone shows up at the house and they're like, no, I don't really want you to come in. I'm not really interested in that. I think we had a lot more success just even getting in the door at all because we were partnering with the fire department. And the fire department paramedics are obviously very comfortable in the field. They're very skilled at doing, getting, going into people's houses. They're, they're, they know uh, they're trained in the safety considerations of those things. That's their, that's where they do their work every day. So that was a really sort of, we, we knew that they're a valuable partner, but I think that was uh, an unexpected benefit of partnering with them. So I think because of that, the patients really love it. And it's the kind of, it is certainly a feel good sort of news story. I mean, the hospital got some press for it and the city government popularized it. And um, now that funding is becoming scarce, I don't think anyone really wants it to go away, although it's hard when they actually have to pay for it. But I think uh, from the community perspective, it's very well received. Now, the di- ambulance diversion program, some people just want to go to the hospital and they call the ambulance. And I mean, recalibrating that, it can be very difficult. And I mean, it's not worth it arguing, you know, in any one case, but I think the more that we would do it, the more people would be like, oh yeah, I heard about this. Or even the, you know, the firefighters who are often the first response who aren't necessarily paramedics wouldn't necessarily know that we could do it. And then they would, and then they would call us and be like, hey, I think I got one that could be good for you. So I think it requires a lot of advertising and just a, a cultural change, both on the EMS provider side and from the patient side about just changing the call 911 ambulance comes, bring you to the hospital, sort of getting people to slowly think a little bit outside the box about, well, how else could we solve this problem? We still want to meet the patient's need, but the patient may not be best served waiting in the emergency department for a long time for something that could be taken care of very quickly at urgent care or taken care of in the field. So I think that that is a constant challenge, but it's something that definitely improved over the course of the program. And as far as like future goals or directions that the program might be headed towards, what are some so far that um, you have with your team? Well, I think the way that the initial grant was set up, it was a little siloed from similar efforts that the hospital is doing. So the hospital also has a transitional care program. The hospital also has this sort of intense outpatient care program. We, We ended up working closely with and I think what we realized was we needed to just be integrated with those services and not be standalone because we can share a lot of resources. We can share a social worker, we can share a case manager. And I think instead of being a standalone program, what we needed to do was augment the transitional care program and augment the intensive outpatient like primary care program so that when patients were discharged from the hospital, they could have 
escalating levels of care. So if all they needed was a few calls from the transitional care nurse on the phone, then that's maybe all they need. Or if they needed some phone calls, but they didn't have a primary care doctor and needed to be seen as outpatient, they would come get an appointment at the outpatient clinic to bridge them to regular primary care. Or if that was really challenging and there were mobility issues and you know, it just seemed like there were a lot of social barriers and we had to figure out, okay, well, the patient's not being adherent to the care plan, what's going on at the house, then they get sent an MIH team to go figure that out and maybe to come back several times. So I think like, instead of being siloed and having a bunch of people do things that are sort of similar, but not quite the same, having it integrated as part of a general overall strategy of the hospital to prevent readmissions and to improve care transition, and then to try to meet the patient, you know, give the patient what they needed, whether that was a lot or a little bit, uh, and target the intervention a bit more specifically to who needed what, I think that would help a lot. It would sort of be more efficient from a resource utilization wise, and might have actually be able to impact more people than, you know, just sort of a one size fits all approach. So I think that was big for that program. For the 911 program, I think we realized that relying on the dispatch codes is just not great because a lot of the low acuity things are a stroke and a lot of the category Delta can't breathe super emergency is an asthma inhaler. And those things just are not very specific. So we really wanted to shift towards having the paramedics who come on scene help refer us, even in the cases that were supposedly high acuity from the initial call, if they find ones that, oh, actually, it's not that high acuity, I think that the MIH program could handle this to try to refer us to them. Um, But that is very difficult. And I think what we're realizing is doing this in the field uh, without sort of a pretty high level clinician in the dispatch center is is hard. The NP van ends up going on a lot of calls that don't end up getting enrolled in the program. So a lot of time is wasted there. When we find the appropriate call, uh, many of those people get enrolled and hardly they ever go to the hospital, but they have to go to a lot of calls that end up going to the hospital anyway to find that one. So I think um, protocolizing that has just been difficult. And we are realizing that moving towards some sort of relatively high trained clinician in the dispatch center to help identify calls that are most amenable and then actively dispatch the NP uh, or ND or community paramedic vehicle is likely to be more successful in terms of volume. I think we just like weren't getting the volume that we needed to, from a sustainability standpoint. One, because I think there's might've been an overestimation of how many of the calls are truly low acuity. Like a lot of people need a lot of stuff. And even if it's not, you know, cardiac arrest, they still might need a lot of things that need to happen in the hospital, you know, complicated diagnostic tests, that kind of thing. So, but part of it is that it's just really hard to know off the basic call. And we need to have a little bit more active of a triage process to identify the right patients for the intervention. Well, thank you so much for all of this great work that you placed in the project. And honestly, thank you for all the impact that it has made to the community, considering that I am also resident at Baltimore. I really greatly appreciate learning from you on a regular basis. And thank you so much for our audience for joining in and listening today. Hopefully you were also able to learn something from it, uh, be able to either start something in a community or share with someone who might be interested. And please join us on our next episode. If you have any questions at all from today, 
uh, you can leave them in the comment box below. And if you would like us to highlight your own program, please email us at the email below as well. All right, see you next time.